Tonight's conversation is going to center mainly on, we get a lot of requests via direct messages, emails, things of that nature pertaining to off-season throwing schedules. And there's Mr. Cressy. And so I thought, who better to ask than the two gentlemen that have been instrumental in my youngest son's athletic baseball career. I thought it would be a great opportunity to bring the band back together, so to speak. Tonight, I'm going to do a lot less talking and a lot more listening. For those of you that are parents, as well as student-athletes, you're always going to get varying opinions on how much to throw, when to throw, when to start throwing, pitching, when to stop pitching, when to start pitching, when to start lifting, at what age, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought this evening what we would do is allow what I felt as a parent to have true mentors. We, we don't use that word enough. A mentor, an advisor, a key advisor, someone with experience and a wealth of knowledge. And I was fortunate enough as a dad to have been introduced to Eric Cressy in Hudson, Massachusetts in September of 2008. My son was playing football at the time. Tyler was playing football at the time. And Rich Gedman, who was coaching the Worcester Tornadoes of the Can-Am League, had suggested that I bring Tyler by to begin a strength program that he felt that Eric would be the, the right individual to put into Tyler's life at that time. So tonight, what we're going to do is allow parents and student athletes to A, ask questions, and B, listen in and get some what I consider to be sage advice. Matt Blake at the time, I wouldn't call him a I, we'll call him a crafty left-hand pitcher from Holy Cross who was just beginning to work with Cressy Performance in 08, 09, I believe, and really did a lot of, before it was all the rage as far as video analysis, was breaking down not only Tyler, but it was the who's who of uh, New England throwers at the time, both high school and college. And Matt was instrumental from a pitching-slash-throwing perspective and I always leaned on both Matt and Eric with regard to taking whatever they felt was right and beneficial for Tyler. As a father, I just allowed them to do what they were best at, which was being themselves as mentors and advisors within the game of baseball from a throwing and strength and conditioning basis. So the first question I'm going to throw out there because he's been uh, nice enough to join us tonight is going to be to Mr. Eric Cressy. And Eric, I have a question here from a uh, young man who lives in the Midwest. And his question is, Mr. Cressy, when do you feel a student athlete should put the baseball down and strength train? At what age should they begin as a student athlete, as a baseball player? Yeah. Oh, first off, thank you very much for having me and for your, your kind words. I think it's a, to be honest, with, with your, your baseball background, it was a real testament to you as a dad. In a lot of ways, you let us do our thing. And I, I, I look back on it, it was probably one of the most important decisions you made for Ty's development. So thank you for that and for tonight. I think it's a, it's a good question to ask 
Um, and it's one we'd certainly get a lot. The thing I talk about is you first have to dispel the myth of strength training, stunting growth for kids or anything like that. Dr. Avery Fagenbach at the, the College of New Jersey has done some great research on this. And really, as long as strength training is age appropriate, it's actually super helpful. You know, I have six-year-old twin daughters. They come to the gym with mom and dad and play around and drag sleds and hang from the pull-up bars and swing from the TRX. I think it's very important to nurture that lifelong relationship with exercise in a positive way. I don't think there's ever really a, a perfect age other than the age that feels the most exciting for a kid. If they're into it, you, know, you can find a way to, to train and make it fun. Certainly, the last thing you need to worry about is your 14-year-old, like stunting his growth. We know that the clavicle, the collarbone, doesn't get skeletally mature until people are about 25. But you don't see people going into college football weight rooms and contraindicating bench pressing or anything like that. Um, so it's much more of a maturity and an, an interest discussion for those young kids. I do think, to be honest, the sweet spot seems to be 13-ish. We have kids as young as 12 at the facility. And we actually run a foundations program that was actually going on tonight before I came home which is like eight to 11 year olds that are usually the, the younger brothers and sisters of, of kids who train with us who wanted to get in on the action. But I do think there's a sweet spot in that age 12 to 15. And we know there's some pretty critical instances for kids to really train certain qualities. Um, and training during the adolescent growth spurt, I think is, is key for a couple of reasons. One, we know kids shoot up six, seven, eight inches in a year. And in many cases, their center of mass moves far away from their base of support. So they go through this awkward clumsy stage in many cases the bones stretch out much faster and the muscles and tens can keep up so putting some good strength in the right place can have a, a grounding effect on some of these athletes so they don't go through that awkward clumsy stage but something else that's pretty interesting is it does seem to be a really key critical window to train power what's interesting about these 13 year old kids who are six foot one and 130 pounds is they never seem to pull hamstrings they don't usually have soft tissue injuries, even though you'd expect them to. And the reason is very simple. They don't necessarily run fast enough or jump high enough or throw hard enough. And so what we need to focus on with these athletes is using this to our advantage where the bones have stretched out, the muscles and tens are really taut trying to keep up. So it's actually a great window in which we can start to train strength and power because we, we develop certain elastic qualities that are maybe harder to train at different junctions. So I, I would actually argue that an athlete that isn't involved in some capacity in strength conditioning before the age of 16, at least in today's world, is, is behind the eight ball. And it's particularly true because of the increased level of specialization in the world. If you're not doing physically what you need to prepare yourself in a global sense you know, at an early age, when specialization does come, you're probably going to be less equipped to handle it. All that said, the most important thing to me, though, is playing multiple sports. Don't force a strength conditioning program on a 13-year-old if he's already a you know a four-sport athlete and there's no more time to cram it into a schedule. You just have to, you know, I, I think evaluate each situation individually. Love that, and I can still remember to this day you telling me if Tyler loves to play football, you let him play football. It was always if he really enjoys doing something that you always allow him to do it. But he always seemed to find a way to do the strength and conditioning in and around his sports, both uh, baseball and football. Matt, Mr. Blake, I have a question for you. This question comes from a parent, I believe, or a young coach. Would love to hear what Mr. Cressy and Coach Blake suggest would be a good book or good reading as a pitching coach to get a better understanding of biomechanics. Matt? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess it depends on what your base level knowledge is. 
some of the good resources that I got started with were some of Tom House's MPA work. That kind of gives you a kind of a good baseline for kind of talking about, you know, some of the, the kinematic sequences and understanding what that is. The driveline program has a, a kind of a nice course that you can walk through some of the delivery and how they look at it from a biomechanics standpoint. There's probably on base you that can help walk you through some of the key components. So depending on what your base level knowledge is, we'll probably determine like what book makes sense for you, or what course makes sense for you. And a lot of the stuff that kind of helped me really grow came from some of the PRI stuff, Postural Restoration Institute, doing a little bit deeper dive just into anatomy more so than maybe what the biomechanics for a pitcher would be. And then like reverse engineering that back into, okay, what does quality movement look like on a global scale? And then what makes sense from a actual pitching skill set uh, and putting those pieces together. And that was obviously leaning on Eric and a lot of the stuff they were doing with their assessments and partnering with a strength conditioning facility and a rehab side with you know, whether it's Eric Schoenberg or Mike Reinold and just trying to put some pieces together around you that can help you understand the language a little bit better and then piece by piece put it together. Thank you, Matt. Next question from a mom. Matt, Caleb, Tyler, anybody that wants to answer this. How do you feel about a pitcher 14 years old going straight into playing quarterback in relation to arm health? I've heard they are different motions, but have read in different books that they are also similar. How do you feel about a pitcher at a young level moving straight into football with regard to arm health as a quarterback? It's a question I've probably wrestled with as much as just about any other ones because it is a really tough dynamic. What, what I will tell you is anecdotally, this time of year, more of our pro guys are throwing the football than probably ever before. More guys are playing catch year-round and not shutting down. Not necessarily stuff that I would recommend to younger kids, but it does seem like Max Scherzer got back from the season. He started throwing the football right away before he even went near a baseball. So it was an interesting discussion point, I think, for me, that guys do see it in a very different light. Um, it's far less stressful than the five-ounce ball. So I don't have as many issues. I think the, the bigger question is how controlled it is. It's one thing to just play catch with the football. It's another thing altogether to go out and make 45 passes in a high school game or something along those lines. So um, I wrestle with it. It's probably not the ideal. If the kid's a good quarterback, you're just going to have to find a different point to get some time off. And maybe the play is, hey, football ends Thanksgiving. You're going to shut down to the first of the year and work backwards from that. That works great in Massachusetts where the high school season starts the third Monday in March. It works terribly in Florida when <laughs> the high school season starts January 30th. So I think you've, you've got to wrestle with, with some of that stuff for sure. Okay, the questions that are coming in fast and furious. Who had a question? Did somebody have a question? Was that you, Brian? I think Caleb wants to add to that. Okay, Caleb, you can absolutely. I didn't see you. Absolutely, you can respond to that, Caleb. Yeah, first off, guys, I appreciate y'all having me in tonight. I did a little work with quarterbacks a couple years back, and I think Eric covered it well. But I think there's also a lot of benefit to baseball guys doing the cross-train lower half-wise from a sequence standpoint, being able to be a little bit more athletic, use the feet a little bit more in the pocket is something I've seen really help guys translate how to sequence down the mound a little better. 
people as long as they're healthy. I think it's a great thing. Thank you, Caleb. Now, I know Mr. House is also on this call, this space. I've invited him to speak if he would welcome Tyler Beatty. Thank you for whoever brought him up as a speaker. Ty, do you want to weigh in at all on when you put the ball down as a young student athlete between football and baseball and what how you felt that may have benefited you younger in your high school and uh, college career? Yeah, absolutely. I think growing up in Massachusetts, you forced to put the baseball down. And growing up playing football, it was just what we did in the fall. You know, it was uh, something that was fun to do. And then as I realized the benefits of being able to throw the football for a couple of months out of the year, as opposed to throwing the baseball, had tremendous benefits on these guys are referring to mechanical sequences and health of the arm, strengthening the arm, so many benefits. But the competitive aspect of it, of just going out there and being able to tap into different athletic movements, different mindsets of going up against different guys and laying hits on guys. Obviously, there's tremendous benefits from throwing a ball, but just tapping into different movements that you don't tap into just playing one sport, I thought was huge. And I think when it came to college, obviously my first fall not being able to to throw the football was tough. And I think I missed that. I think my my arm missed that because I certainly felt the byproduct of throwing for the first time ever during the fall in that sort of capacity. And so I realized early on in college that I needed to continue to implement throwing the football some way, somehow. And yeah, I picked my spots and was able to just move the arm like ECU was saying about Scherzer. When the time is uh when the time comes to stop throwing, it doesn't mean you have to stop throwing everything. You can you know, pick up a baseball or tennis ball or shoot a basketball, whatever it is to keep the arm moving. So I benefited a lot from that, picking it back up and I see tremendous value for all aspects of it. One of the things we definitely just we've seen more in the you know, I guess in the training space and not just with respect to throwing, but certainly, you know, if you look at what they're doing with marathoners and things like that, this, this concept of acute and chronic workload, people tend to get into trouble when there are large spikes in acute workload, when they haven't built up a large, you know, chronic workload, like a work capacity that's going to protect them. And I think this is where a lot of the stuff that we're seeing with guys continuing to throw year round is becoming more and more common. Guys are doing it intelligently, so they don't let their chronic workload drop really low they're continuing to move it and they're not having the crazy soreness in the first couple of weeks and they have to get it moving again i think throwing the football is a way to get some general specificity you're moving the arm but the pattern's probably not exactly the same and you give them some variety without completely detraining so I, I i'm more open to it than i ever have been before i do know that one of the important things that i learned in 2010 uh, we, we as a family, Tyler and I had the, actually it was 2009 at USC, we had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Tom House, who at the time was the pitching coach at University of Southern California, the Trojans. And one of the things that he specifically had mentioned to Tyler during that initial meeting was, you know, how fluid and athletic that Tyler was in, in, I attributed that to his throwing a football really since the age of six and putting the baseball down during that time of the year. And I just going forward, just always hearing Tom talking about throwing is in all of our DNA as a throwing athlete. Our ancestors were always throwing things, rocks and things of that nature, whether it was for hunting or survival or just for skill. 
And so I think that that's an important dynamic to all going athletes. Now, I have a lot of questions here. This one is for Matt Blake, specifically Coach Mike, pitching coach at Ryder and with the Trenton Thunder of the uh, MLB Draft League. He would like to know, in terms of relievers that will throw back-to-back days during the year, how often do you recommend they simulate that in preseason and how far before the start of the season should they start that? Uh, That's a good question. I don't know if I have an exact answer for you. I know with us at our level, we'll probably have them do it maybe once before the uh, season starts uh, and just be aware of as we get into the season that they haven't done it a lot, but there's probably a case to be made for some of these guys getting a, a couple Okay, I muted there. So it seemed like I think that's one thing we, with our guys, we talk to our relievers about how much they've done in the past, how well they know themselves, how they know about how they bounce back. Because a lot of them at the lower levels probably have not done it. Some guys at the college ranks may have done it, but I think that's part of the process of getting to know our players and see, you know, what they know about their recovery routines. And as we get in season, obviously managing how often we do that with guys and what their throwing program looks like around those days. But we really don't practice doing it a lot in spring training, um, which may be something we need to look at more. But I think for the most part, our veteran guys prefer to do it, maybe get into uh, a real game on a, you know, say a Thursday and then do a, you know, a backfield game or a sim game on the Friday so we can control the intensity a little bit and make sure that they can handle the bounce back and they're not thrown into just two live games right away. Okay, this question is for Eric and Matt and Caleb. How could you break down a buildup after a legit two-month shutdown for a starter? How many weeks before mound work? Buildup on the mound, deloads, live BP. So how many, after a legit two-month shutdown for a starter, how many weeks should he be before he starts building back up before mound work? Blake, you want to take that one first? Sure. So I think it probably depends a little bit on what your timeline is on the back end of, you know, so if you take two months off and that's October and November, and then you have December, January, February to get ready. um, It probably, I always like to work back from when do you need to be in competition mode? And then how much time does that leave us? I would say as a rule of thumb, you know, we're probably looking at four to six weeks of ramp up time before we get on the mound in an ideal world, every situation is a little bit different. So you're trying to adjust to trying to get them to, you know, slowly ramp up their intensity and accumulate some stress and some volume before we put them on the mound. And then there might be another four week window on the mound before they, you know, go into, you know, live BPs and things like that. But I would say at the very least four to six weeks is a good window to start with. E, anything else that you would follow up on that? I think the old adage of, Every day you're shut down is a day to ramp back up. I, I think does hold pretty true. So if you're down for two months, it's planning for at least a two month build back up before you're you're full bore off of a mound. Like Matt said, it's probably four to six weeks to get back off of a mound as you built up your long toss and done what you need to do, and then a couple more weeks just to get to the point where your intensity on the mound is back up to you know a, a pretty high level of effort. And and I would think too, it probably comes down to what you need to work on as well. So if you're a 
skilled pitcher, but your throwing ability is not very good. Like you need to throw harder or you need to improve your delivery. There might be a case where you do things differently. So you might take some time in, you know, a velocity development phase that doesn't put you on the mound um, for a little bit longer. So it might be four to six weeks of buildup to get to a four week, four to six week window of velocity work before you transition that to the mound. But it a little bit depends on how much time you have on the back end to get your mound reps in and how much skill work you need to be ready to actually compete. Thank you, gentlemen. This one is for Caleb. Since you have introduced the plyo balls that have the seams, have you seen or noticed any significant increase in spin rate? That's actually a really good question. And uh, I think the problem that's going around on our staff and the problem going around across the country is the plyo cutter. And I, I think a lot of guys have developed a bad habit, whether they've got into a routine of doing them too fast or just mentally weren't aware of how they were training. Ever since we added in the seams with our guys at Texas, we've seen spin, spin efficiencies increase. We've seen guys who were sinker guys go back to that more natural sink, get away from the cut, and also guys are able to spin it up in the zone a little bit more ever since we've moved to the plows with the seam. So that's actually a really good question. Something we've noticed as well. There's a generation of kids who can't play catch, can't read ball flight because they spent their entire life throwing plow care to a wall. So I'm a big believer now. And beyond just the great point that he just made with respect to the cutters, you got to make sure that at least 50% of your throwing volume is with an actual baseball, with an actual human. Um, I think that gets really overlooked in today's era of, you know, I think particularly over COVID, there were a lot of guys who played catch with a cement wall for a good year. And we're starting to see some of the, the fallout to that. Just need to be cognizant of remembering that you make your money with the five ounce balls and, you know, go, don't get too far away from the seams and that weight. Okay, question for all of the above, Mr. Beatty, Mr. Cressy, Mr. Blake, and Coach Caleb. What kind of activity should be performed before any player picks up a baseball to throw at practice or before a game? Should any throwing be done before any type of warm-up? I, I guess that would be, are we stretching, dynamic stretching, as it was referred to at 577 Main Street in Hudson, or is there anything specifically should be done before any throwing takes place at a practice or before a game? That, on my end, you got to get your body temperature up. You warm up to throw, you don't throw to warm up. So for me, you know, it might stop start with some like self myofascial release. And you see a lot of pro guys who get manual stretches and soft tissue work on the front side of things, and then they'll go through like a comprehensive warm up that exposes them to more significant ranges of motion, put some stability in that range of motion, get their body temperature up and groove the patterns that are, you know, important to them. And there are, you know, guys that handle it differently. Like, so you look at our pitching staff, like Jamison Ty is a more loose jointed guy. He's going to do a lot of stability stuff. We have other arms on our roster that are a lot stiffer and need to, to increase some range of motion and, and really get their body temperature up even more to get to where they need to be. And then I'd obviously defer to, to Blake in terms of a lot of the stuff that the guys will do to get more of a specific warm-up going on the throwing side. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a component that Eric touched on, and then I think it comes down to knowing yourself and what it takes to, to get your body ready, where Garrett in particular doesn't really do anything else other than what is most efficient for him to get his body prepared to throw the baseball as close to his delivery as possible, where other guys – in the past that probably have a more extensive 
plyo care routine to pattern certain parts of their throwing motion that we need to improve or adjust or just be aware of so that when they get on the line to throw, they're actually ready to go without having a bad pattern or inefficient pattern. And I, I think it's important that they are very intentional with that plyo care work if they're going to do it, because a lot of guys will just go over and check the box like they're getting themselves body temperature up, but actually creating bad patterns before they throw the baseball. So there's probably a balance there of guys that are comfortable just picking up the five ounce ball and going and knowing their body and other guys that you know need a little bit more. Yeah, I would say in the college game too, we don't have as much time with them as even at the lower levels and in professional baseball. So just building in some type of movement quality specific to that individual and, and getting the correct pattern drilled in as much as we can in that little time we have them is, is something we always try to work in as well. Okay, this question comes in not just for pitchers, so I'm going to let uh, Tyler handle this. As a position player during the course of a season, what what type of throwing activities did you do before you focused on solely being a pitcher? So were there any particular throwing drills or uh, routines that you would use to get your arm loose both off-season and in-season as a position baseball player? <laughs> you, you want me to take this one? I do, because yeah, I got another one I'd, for you next. I'd for sure call myself a position player, all-around athlete. I think, I guess from my observations of watching position players throw, they're very routine-oriented and consistent with their throwing in-season from what I've seen. But distance-wise, amounts, reps before games, the same time before games. And in practice – taking spots to stretch out the arm as well. I think obviously they go through, but not PFPs, they go through infield, outfield, things of that nature, making throws to the bases or making plays in the infield and fielding a tremendous amount of balls. I think you need to pick your spots to save your arm as well. There's times where where infielders are taking ground balls a lot, you know, either during, during batting practice or just before a game. And they're just not, they're not making the throws, but they do pick their spots to make the throws as well. Cause you see those guys making plays in the hole especially now today's game how teams utilize the shift so much so you got to take plays from different positions and different spots and just practice those throws so I think picking your spots to work on some things and work on some throws and then when it comes to playing catch in the off season yeah I think those guys probably wait a little bit longer to play catch I know Crawford I just saw him and he said he's not playing catch till January 1st and a guy like that who's going to play every game and make a lot of throws, he, he waits until basically a month and a half before spring training starts, and I'm sure it's a, a slow buildup, and he's a guy who utilizes the football as well. So it's not just something for pitchers. It's something position players can utilize too. And then just obviously being athletic. I think what I've learned as a pitcher from watching infielders or outfielders throws, how they're always moving their feet, they're staying athletic, they're making athletic throws. And as much as you want to stay within your mechanics – that you would throw with on the mound, sometimes uh, it takes getting back to being an athlete. I know that's benefited me making plays from short or just as I'm playing catch with my partner, finishing with some athletic throws and then some pickoffs and, and just really trying to, to mix up the movements. And I've learned that from position players. That's the best I can give you from a position player standpoint. The question was really asked about when you're 14 to 18 and you're playing a position and pitching. So I, that's why I brought you in. I'm not sure the soft going lefty from Holy Cross was playing shortstop at the time. I know the lefty catcher 
from Maine was a catcher. I, at least he pretended to be. So I figured the only guy I could ask would be you. Now the question for Eric, what would the difference be between a pitcher versus a catcher when the catcher throws just as many throws during the course of a game? How should catchers be preparing their arm during the course of both the offseason and in season? The thing I, I actually – I think you'd be surprised when you look at a lot of our programs, how many commonalities there are just in terms of how we attack arm care with our pitchers and our catchers, just because like you said, they do take on a ton of volume. And, you know, I think the other thing that's very different about catchers versus pitchers is when you're a pitcher, you control the, the tempo of the game. You know, you're, you're well positioned to use your lower half to decelerate on every pitch and, and kind of create this full body dynamic with catchers. We get a lot of snap throws, you're inherently adjusting to whatever the base runners and the pitcher put you in for positions and, and situations. I actually think that if, if we're looking at you know the overall big picture, catchers probably need to have stronger cuffs, better scapular control, more thoracic mobility because they don't have the ability to really utilize their lower half nearly as much with a lot of the positions that they get into. The other thing is they're always going to be in situations where they're making awkward tags, um, potential collisions, and they've got to run the bases. They've got to dive. They've got to slide. So there are a lot of other ways that our catchers can wind up with some upper extremity problems. So for me, number one priority is don't overlook arm care. They need to do it. Um, they need to push really hard. And, and I, I would actually say that's true of all position players. And it's something that I think gets really heavily overlooked. On the throwing program side of things, I would say our catchers get started, to be honest, almost as soon as a lot of our pitchers, just because the last thing I want in the offseason is a lot of our guys who are going to go out and catch a bunch of bullpens in January to just have to be like, have their arms hanging as they're on bullpen number 17 or whatever it is of the day. We've got a couple of big league catchers in-house with us right now, and both of those guys have already started their throwing programs, and we're having this conversation on November 22nd, so they're right on the same kind of timeline as our pitchers and, and being honest, you know, I haven't met a catcher didn't want to improve arm strength. So I think there's tons of stuff that we can use that are similar between the two. It's probably just a more of a function of like the drill work and, you know, what you're utilizing to actually, you know, challenge them in that dynamic. Okay. I want to make sure if you have a question, you can request to speak and I'll bring you up as a speaker, or you can send me a direct message and I'll go ahead and read it when, when you send it to me, this one's for, probably Kayla, everybody, it's the whole panel. It's basically saying when college student athletes or high school student athletes uh, return during this time of break between Thanksgiving and, and probably Christmas, and they're not giving a given a specific throwing plan, stretching, lifting plan, is there anything they can do if their season were to start in February? Is there a game plan that you could give them or an outline that you could give them for them to get ready and get prepared for their season on their own. Mr. Blake. So I thought that was going to Caleb. The In terms of what they're doing on their own. It's a, basically it's a junior college student or a college student athlete that hasn't been given a program to prepare for the upcoming season. It, floating aimlessly and they're not they're on their own any kind of tips or tidbits you can give them to maybe go through the next six to eight weeks and get a little bit of jump on everybody yeah i would think for me from our loose rule of thumb like i'm trying to like get a way to wave the intensity across the week i'm just thinking about breaking into maybe three different types of programs where you have 
a high intensity, a medium intensity, and a low intensity as like a, you know, simple rule where it's that way you're just, you have one day that's a low intensity and you're building to a medium and then you're going to a high and then you have a day off and you cycle back through it. I think there's just different ways to on your own judge for yourself what high and low intensity are without having someone write out maybe you need to make 40 throws here on this day, 80 throws on this day, 100 on this day, whatever the case may be. But I think as a thrower, learning your own intensity and then just holding yourself accountable to maybe your first couple of weeks building up as you go and just self-regulating with how you would rank maybe one to 10, what the intensity was that you were doing. So that way you're not held to a certain program that doesn't make sense for you. It's I would say for us, a lot depends on the individual. We have a lot of guys who throw the ball middle to high 90s that need some work on locating in the offseason. So it's really not the best time for those guys to take a back seat because if they lose the feel of the fastball for a couple weeks, then whenever we crank up quick at the end of January and they don't have that feel for that fastball, then they're going to get an extended period of time where they don't throw much during the season. So I think – it's very, very individual, especially in college with summer ball. How many innings did you throw the year before? What was your usage during the fall? What do you need to improve on? Did you throw a ton of innings and it's time for you to get in the weight room? You're a starter. You don't have much command issues. But what I see way too often times in college are the guys that struggle with the command they're making some progress in the fall. Then they shut it down after Thanksgiving and they try to come back in January and they've lost that feel and they end up getting to take most of the season off because they throw four to five innings over the course of a season rather than make sure they're working on staying consistent throughout the break. Okay. Question for Tyler Beatty. At what age did you begin to work out lift as a baseball player? And how did you find the time to work that in if you played other sports? You asked what age? The question is, at what age did you begin strength training as a baseball player? And how did you fit it in being a high school student with other sports? Yeah, I got introduced to Cressy's spot about when I was 14 by Rich Gedman. And I headed down there at 14. And, and so that I think that would have been the time if I even knew about Cressy's spot before then. I think 14 sounds about like the right age to get in and do the movements and lifts that I was doing at that time. And in regards to the timing and, and being a high school kid and trying to find time, you just have to make it a priority. I think obviously while I was in school, there were times during football practice, at football practice after school, and I would have to go after football practice and get workouts in to try to stay on schedule because at that time, I was still decided to play basketball. And then my first year, after first couple months after going to Cressy's, I decided that basketball essentially wasn't able to put any weight on. Playing football, basketball, and baseball, running so much during basketball, I wasn't able to sustain, sustain some weight. And so I had to sacrifice one of the sports, and I figured the sport right before baseball season – even though I loved basketball, I just I uh, felt like that was the right decision. And so I sometimes you need to make sacrifices and maybe remove some priorities or shift your priorities. And so for me, after football practice, during the summers, as much as I wanted to be doing what the other kids were doing, I had to obviously was traveling and playing baseball down south or wherever. 
And then when the time came to, to come back, getting into the gym or the time right before I left, getting into the gym and getting a solid a few weeks to a month of workouts in before I headed out for that summer circuit. And then it got more serious as I got later into high school, preparing for college and preparing for the next level. When I was at Lawrence Academy, driving with a buddy, find a friend who is willing to commit. It doesn't obviously have to be to a, a facility like Eric's. Obviously, we always highly recommend that. But if, if you're near someplace that has a gym equipment and you have a buddy who you can go um, and get in an environment with where you're working out with guys who you can who you can push and can be pushed by. And the earlier, the better. I think it's safe once, I'm sure Eric can touch on that, the age that's appropriate, but 13, 14, get in there and just doing some movements and adding some strength. But obviously the most important thing at that age is just getting out and playing different sports and trust athleticism. But that would be my suggestion. Mr. Cressy, any advice as far as the age that student athletes can start strength training? I think he nailed it. My earlier point was just, Start when it's when it's exciting for people. Obviously, don't wait till they're, you know, twenty five, but get a head start on it. You know, the other thing is just as, as Ty was talking about that. You know, I, I think there's an assumption that like coaches always teach athletes. To be honest, I learned way more from going through that high school process with Tyler. He was our first rounder, and it, it taught me a lot about expectations. Um, I'm sure, you guys have all seen the, the graphic of what we think success looks like you know, the steady linear improvement I mean, in reality. It's what, you know, what success really looks like. It's all the squiggly lines in a bunch of different directions. And I think it was almost like one of those, you see these, these big epiphanies for Ty, like first off season. All right. My, my pitching velocity is directly related to my body weight. There's a very linear relationship with that. And all of a sudden things started to spike as he filled out and, you know, hit 90 for the first time. And then what did we see in like that, that summer after junior year, I, I distinctly remember it was a he had gone and pitched at some tournaments, been on the road for a while. He came back and he was light. He worked out for a little like ten or twelve days, got some home cooking, body weight got back up. He went back out there and hit like ninety two for the first time. So we kind of learned our lesson there. And then the one that that I think was still very impactful for where Ty you know wound up was he went out. And he got cut by Team USA, and he, he came back from that experience, having been all the way to the final cuts. And it, it lit an entirely new fire underneath him. He went and played football that fall, got after it. But I just, I, I always think back to how aggressive the catch play was, you know, how intent and how intentful and purposeful every single throw that he made. I can remember him and Blake and John Gorman just trying to break each other's hands all winter working on that stuff this year. And, you know, obviously went out and was, you know, was very good that spring. But even, you know, in a first round spring, there were days when he was 88 to 90 and other days when he was 94 to 96. And I think we put so much pressure on kids to have these, you know, linear paths all the way through high school. And they're not an 18 year old kid on the planet who consistently repeats his mechanics. So they're going to be hills and valleys. And, you know, I, I, I learned that just from going through this with Ty. And it's definitely helped us a lot as we've dealt with, more and more kids over the years just not to put too much pressure on them to be so good so young let it let it come in time as they fill out their bodies and and understand like what works as part of their routine okay now whenever you gentlemen have to go please let me know because i know you i know we have a recent newlywed here as well as a dad with three young daughters you let me know the questions keep coming in specifically this one is for eric Listening right now, I have a 16-year-old who started strength training back when he was 10. Question, is there specific lifts that he, overhead throwing athletes should steer clear of? 
Additionally, speak about the importance of mobility in conjunction with strength training. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the jury's been out over the years about whether lifting can, you know, interfere with mobility. And, you know, I think when lifting is, is appropriately dosed and you go in and out of heavier periods of it throughout the year, it seems to work out well. I can tell you like there are times when guys have sold out for the dream too much with respect to strength training. And it, it certainly, you know, started to work to limit their rotational capacity, things like that. You know, we see that more often in kind of kids that go to division one programs put on 25 pounds in their freshman year get way better and then they just stay the same for two years because they haven't necessarily changed the stimulus so i do think too much of a good thing can be too much so you have to be mindful of that but in terms of specific exercises that you know might be contraindicated you know like we're not barbell benching guys we're not back squatting guys and you know it's honestly because those are you know definitively harmful to arms but more because there are safer options that we can choose that give people better training effects. And so we don't want to pin your shoulder blades down on a bench when you're going to be throwing a baseball standing up. So if we can do more drills like landmine presses and push-ups and cable presses where your shoulder blades can move freely, those are probably better carryover drills. So those are probably more of our like choices. It's more about training economy. What are the drills that are the safest, but also give us the best, you know, functional carryover to what we're really trying to achieve. And at the end of the day, I just, I, I really come back to it. You know, we, we deal with a lot of really high level athletes and very rarely is strength, the limiting factor. You know, we can put an entire off season to try to take somebody's deadlift from 450 to 500. And it, maybe it makes them 0.05% better at baseball. Whereas I can work on other qualities where I'm, I give them five degrees more hip and turn rotation and it might change their life and take away their pain. So I think we always have to be mindful of everything that we do in the weight room is to support staying healthy and performing at a higher level on the field. So sometimes you have to be emotionally separated from the, the exercise that you like to utilize that you're comfortable using. Okay. Question for Matt Blake. Wondering if you could tell me what the ratio of flat ground work they do in comparison to mound work off season and in season. And then are they doing flat grounds daily, throwing base breaking balls from flat grounds as well early in their ramp up period? So I would say we encourage our guys to get off the mound as much as possible. And we actually intentionally moved our throwing program when I got to the Yankees from our right field foul line to like center field. Sorry about that. I was saying we we moved our our throwing program from our right field foul line actually to center field. So it lined up closer with our bullpen because it just felt if we could take away one less, like one thing that was like, okay, it's too far away, so I'm going to resort. It was, I wanted guys to get on the slope as much as possible, even if it meant just four or five throws off the mound, catcher up short, whatever the case might be, feels like that the timing is impacted pretty significantly and the ability to shape breaking balls on the flat ground isn't quite as crisp. For us, it's still managing the intensity and the volume on the mound. We're not doing a lot of it, but especially our relievers are probably getting it on there every couple of days just in case they're not getting into games. But I would say, you know, probably after the first two, three weeks of the off season, I don't mind guys just getting a couple of reps on the slope just to start getting some of the timing back at lower intent 
intensities or even lower doses from a volume standpoint. I think the more you can practice your delivery on an angle on the slope, I think the, the more aware you're going to be when it starts getting to full intensity. So that's where we are. Well, obviously, we still have guys that really like the flat ground, and it's just kind of part of their routine and try and manage that as best as possible. And if you see opportunities where they're working on something and it doesn't seem like it's translating, kind of picking the right time to have the conversation with them about maybe moving that part of their program onto the slope. I know in particular we did that with uh, Chappie this year where there's just a lot of times where he was repping things out on the flat ground, and I just didn't feel like that was helping his delivery, and we needed to get it on the slope a little bit more, even though he was – pitching at high leverage at the time so just trying to pick and choose the, the battles we're in and find the right spots to you know get guys to understand the value in it matt and tyler can you tell me at what point in your warm-up progressions are you that guy that nobody wants to play catch with meaning is that something that begins during the off season or is that in season only that was a question pertaining to when eric said that john gorman and and you and tyler were trying to break each other's hands throwing hard to each other <laughs> Blake you want to go or you want me to go uh, you can go first and then I'll piggyback on that at what point do we become someone you don't want to play catch with is that the context of it I mean yes. I think yeah <laughs> it takes me at least right now it takes me about a month and a half for me to to really be getting on the ball at least what I've learned coming back from Tommy John as much as in the past, as I used, it probably took me two weeks to start really letting it go. I've, I've slowly progressed that a little bit longer. And, yeah, when it comes to it, I think really the, the pull-down phase, when you're building out long toss, at least for me, to kind of 180, 200, 200-plus. 200 and then as you're coming in, yeah, I'm going to try to throw it through your chest. And for me, the benefit of that is is seeing the ball carry, creating backspin, and, and feeling like I'm getting behind the ball and, and having it stay true through my partner's chest. And, yeah, that's – certainly not fun, fun to play catch with all the time and being on the receiving end of some of those throws. But yeah, obviously the more you play catch with those, my dad had me playing catch at from 11 to 14 playing catch with his college pitchers and they, they were chucking balls through my chest as well as hard as they could. And so that kind of fired me up to do the same. I think if you're throwing with a guy who kind of you mirror in a sense, maybe you're a righty, throwing 85, 90, whatever it is, you want to try to find a guy, maybe he's throwing a little bit harder. It's running in a race. You want to put the faster guy to your left, to your right, so that you can challenge yourself to be better and throw harder and just have more intent. So I think it's a good thing. I think you want to be in that setting and playing catch with those types of guys. That's what I would say. Yeah, I'd, I'd say we're probably, in general, looking at week five. in a throwing program where you're 90% of better back in, throw them. I would say there's always a level of mentality all the way up to that point with your intensity. Like we're actually, you're still focused on executing a good rep. It just might be with less aggressiveness on the finish in the earlier phases of your throwing program. But for me, that's always one of those ones that I've wrestled with a little bit of like how much do, you know, we really want guys airing it out at the end to a point where it's like almost somewhat uncontrolled. So I've always probably, you know, stopped guys from getting to that point where it's just a full, like reckless abandon of the throwing program at the end where it's almost like intentionally like aggressive to the point where you're uncomfortably playing catch. I I think there's probably a a monitor in there just a year below that that we want to get to unless we're in a velocity phase and you're 
you're throwing to a net and you're not, you know, putting your partner at risk or you're throwing with one of your bullpen catchers, things like that. So I would say it's usually week five or six where we start to get into that phase, but it obviously, again, it depends on, you know, what, how much window you have or how much runway you have before you get on the mound and where your competition sits. Question for Tyler on the concept of pitcher only. If you assume that a high school baseball player is an above average hitter, infielder, outfielder, et cetera, but really excels as a pitcher, when is it time to accept? Is there a time to accept the PO tag based on Tyler's experience? Yeah, I think sometimes you're forced into it. You know, I think you go, maybe you're potentially going to play at a, a school or a level where there may be, you may, you may have been a high above, above average hitter position player in high school. But you get to that next level and you may be playing with kids who can swing it a little bit better than you and, and play a position a little bit better than you. I wouldn't suggest focusing on it in high school unless you have a coach potentially who you're pitching a game, six innings, whatever it is, a week, and then you're, you're going to play shorter outfield and making high leverage throws. I think trusting the circumstances, if you're, you know, if you can swing the bat and there's a, an opportunity to, I don't know, DH, however that looks like in high school, I'm not sure now, but or play a position where you limit your throws. I think you need to be safe, especially if you're a high leverage arm and you're, you're going to play at the next level. Yeah. I think you just need to protect yourself on some level and being a PO isn't a terrible thing. And it's fun to be able to go out there and, and play a position and swing the bat. I love doing it. I did it my, my whole senior year. I picked spots to play certain positions during the week before I would pitch. But if you feel like you're being overutilized and your arms fatigued, then pick your spots and take a rest. And then at the next level, if you, if you can play a position and pitch in, in college, you got to feel that's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool accomplishment. You show how you being able to do it at the highest level. I've seen guys, A.J. Reed at Kentucky, be able to do it, win the Golden Spikes Award, and, and just dominate from both sides. So the longer you can do it, the better. But just got to be cautious of how your arm's being utilized from a mound standpoint and out of position. Question for Matt Blake. Is there a truth to having your glove hand finish in the middle of your body for better control? Does your glove hand, wherever it lands, have no effect on locating when pitching? (laughs) What's the priority with regard to your glove hand with regard to location? Uh, I don't know if I necessarily need it in the middle of your body. I've always felt whether your terminology is kind of like swivel it in. I feel like there's some level of clearing to be done on the front side and then uh, a little bit of tension as you get closer to release that allows you to have like a fixed point or a stable point that you can rely on as you're rotating your torso to release and obviously you don't want the the glove side to block your rotation from finishing or getting yourself to a release consistently it's a little bit nuanced and it's probably you know easier to explain in person or via video but I would think that there's some level of like clearing of the front side that happens that in a classic sense is probably your front side flying out. But I think there's some level of like recall of the front side that allows you to hold your rotation or your line to your plate. To me, it's just outside your lead leg, probably closer individual to each guy, how long their arm path is and the timing of their torso rotation, things along those lines. Chris, do you have a question, sir? Okay, we'll ask the next question. Caleb, 
when you're using your products at the college level, does everybody follow the same routine? I guess that pertains to the Marv training program with both the pitching and the seamed balls and the hitting. Is it something that the whole team utilizes together or is that just optional? I know a lot of programs across the country lay it out where this is what everybody does, at least at first, and it just branches off. At Texas, we're really big about routines. And in the college game, a lot of people think we have all this time with these guys, but we really have to lay a foundation early, and hopefully they will pick it up and incorporate it into their routine so they can do it on their own and their extra work and their early work so it doesn't really go against our practice hours. But for the most part, it's individual. Different guys are working different things, scapular control-wise. And from an offensive standpoint, a lot of the guys will use the bands for hitting movements. Some guys use it exclusively for hitting. Some guys use it exclusively for arm care. It's just all individual. They're introduced to it early, and then whatever kind of sticks – and a guy has success with is normally what they incorporate in their routine and keep. Chris, do you want to ask that question now? Okay, question for Eric. Are one to three rep max lifts beneficial or should higher reps be added to programs? In other words, are one to three rep max is beneficial compared to high rep routine? They definitely elicit very different training adaptations. So certainly think that if you want to get stronger, you have to lift some big boy weights. And after an initial phase of training, you're probably not going to get really strong doing a bunch of sets of 10. Early on, that can, can certainly work with younger athletes who are a little bit less trained. But as time goes on, yeah, you do need to lift heavier. Do you have to do one rep maxes? No. You can get pretty darn strong lifting in sets of three to five. And probably a lot of our heavy work takes place with some of our higher level athletes but yeah you do need to, to actually move some significant weights with lower reps to to develop those strength adaptations question for caleb do you recommend medicine ball work down the mound during the off season hello yeah for some guys we have them do just depends you know going working with the strength curve. Some guys like using the heavier balls. I'm personally a fan of lighter work, working on moving down the mound, staying in sequence, trying to keep that same tempo. But I think it's good for guys that get shut down and that aren't throwing much and that need to stay athletic and need to continue to move down the mound and increasingly work on moving quick and efficient. Chris, do you have a question, sir? Yes, sir. Eric Cressy, I heard you speak at uh, Palooza, and you were talking about the front hip pullback. So many players are talk about the front leg lead blocking, and they miss that front hip pullback. Can you please describe that a little bit more? Yeah, it sounds like wordplay, but to me it's a very important differentiation to make. When you talk about lead leg blocking, to me, it, the connotation is somewhat of, a, hey, just extend your knee. And what we realize is actually happening in that, in that lead leg is you're actually working into the front hips. So you're taking motion in the frontal, the transverse, and the sagittal planes, 
I'm effectively you're trying to turn it into a linear motion at ball release so you can impart the right amount of force to the baseball. Deliveries are various levels of rotational capacity, but you're not going to take elite rotation and turn it into something more straight ahead to the plate just by extending your knee. You actually have to work into that front hip. You have to accept internal rotation and adduction and flexion in varying degrees in order to do that. I think that needs to drive a lot of our training decisions is we need to understand that learning how to rotate into the front hip is incredibly important. And you don't get that from just extending your knee. And to be honest, if you just extend your knee, you're, you're taking a hinge joint and you're asking it to take on a lot of stress that it's probably not well equipped to handle and, and probably throwing a lot more stress on the passive restraints as opposed to the active restraint. We spend a lot of time, you know, with single leg balance exercises, uh, single leg strength exercises, medicine ball drills, you know, there are a million different ways that you can train it without even having a baseball in your hand. I think that's that's vitally important. Question for Tyler Beatty. How important is the mental game at the big league level? And what can our athletes proactively do to enhance their mental game? That's a great question. Um, it's, it's massively important. I think we grow up and our whole life spent on working on the, the physical side of it. And then when it comes time to it, you know, I think what a lot of players don't focus on and what I put by the wayside for a long time was the mental side of the game. I think the ways you train it or the ways you train your body, it's it's something that can be trained and it just takes some effort. A lot of it has to do with, for me, a lot of what has given me confidence is visualization and, and seeing myself have success. I think you get into a game that's full of failure and you can often be handicapped by recent failure and, and you can dwell on those poor results or those bad outings, which I've done in the past and has, has set me off down the wrong path versus just picking myself back up, seeing myself have success, whether it's through visualizing, literally watching tape, watching myself pitch and have success or just meditation type of type of practices that seem somewhat odd, but at, at this juncture, you know, I think those are things that can be very beneficial for you and just quieting the noise that's going on all around you. And I think part of developing the mental side of the game has a lot to do with knowing yourself. I think you get to a certain level and you have, obviously you can have the opportunity of having a pigeon coach like Matt Blake, but sometimes you're in a location or a spot or a team where you may be your best pitching coach. And I think really ultimately you are no matter who's your pitching coach and you can rely on, on them to, to help be a set of eyes for you with maybe some things that you're working on and some things you need to improve on, but ultimately your body yourself and you know what it takes for you to have success on the mound. You're the only guy that's out there on the mound. And so when it comes time to it, the voice that matters most is yours and the conviction that you have is going to come from being yourself. And it's massively important. I think you can't, you can't just let, you know, things that you're struggling with mentally be suppressed and internalize them. You need to either find a, a teammate who's gone through something similar or a coach who has the experience at that level and ask them what they did to help get them past maybe some of the tough spots and failures of their game, and then just continue to press forward. I think yeah, it's, it's certainly worth talking about on a huge level because everybody goes through adversity in the game. Everybody goes through injuries and rehab, and those experiences are they must be shared, and we've got to help other teammates and other players and other kids get past those adversities and try to experience some success past that. Okay. I want to make sure that everybody knows 
all of our guests, including Caleb, Mr. Cressy, Coach Blake, and Tyler Beatty. They're joining us. They may leave us. As long as they're here, I'll ask questions. We only go 90 minutes. We have this available via Spotify tomorrow. I'm going to ask this question for Matt Blake while you're still here. When pairing guys together for a game, i.e. starters and relievers, should you pair guys that are similar, soft, lefty, guys with similar pitchers, or guys that are opposite, hard throwers with soft throwers? How do you decide that when trying to pair starters with relievers for that particular day? Yeah, that's a good question. I think obviously there's some level of balancing out what you're throwing at hitters, whether it's the hard throwing righty with the soft throwing lefty behind them and trying to give as much of a contrast as possible. But there's probably a time where you're facing a lineup with, you know, nine righties in it. So I think it's being aware of who your own is and kind of what the matchups look like or have the, the harder it is for hitters to get a read on each guy. But I think that's probably why the bullpen games for us end up even as complicated as they can be, have a lot of success because it just gives a lot of different looks. Uh, but I don't think you necessarily need to have different looks. It's probably just being aware of, you know, who you have to offer against a certain type of hitter on a, on a given day. Another question for Matt Blake. What do you say to Garrett Cole when you walk out to the mound? Is he happy to see you or not happy to see you? <laughs> if I have to go out and see Garrett, we're probably in a bad spot usually. So it's uh, usually you're dealing with a caged animal when you get out there. He He's super intense you know, on the mound, and I think it's he's different than maybe some of our other guys. And I think it's just knowing the personalities when you get out there. I think with Garrett, it's a lot of times trying to just recenter him on what's going on, you know, what's the environment we're in, what's the next batter coming up. And I think just – He's very aware, generally, of situations, of himself. He's very understanding of what he needs to do to center himself. And getting back to some of the mental game stuff, you know, I think that's the biggest thing when you go out for the mound visit. With Garrett, he's as prepared as anybody as far as who he's facing. He's really good at centering himself. So really, for me, it's giving him a breather and allowing him to just breathe a little bit so that he can give himself a chance to get his mind other guys, it might be giving them a cue or giving them something to focus on for the next particular hitter to refocus on, you know, the next step. But yeah, Garrett's definitely a different beast in a lot of ways. So uh, he's probably in our. Okay. Question for all of the people that are still with us. At what point do you begin to use metrics, analytics, introduce words such as spin rate, horizontal, vertical, run, blah, blah, blah. At what point do you begin to introduce that to young student-athletes? I personally don't remember any of that stuff coming into play at Crescent Performance at 577 Main Street in Hudson, Mass. But maybe I wasn't there and didn't see it. But when did you begin to use metrics, analytics with younger student-athletes? Eric, you want to just last question for you, sir? Yeah, I'd say the reason you don't remember it is because it was a different era. I'll be honest I look back on a lot of the players I trained between 09 and 13, 14, and I wish that I had the resources that I have at my fingertips today. The ability to, to, to show them quantifiable feedback on what we were intervening with and whether it was working, whether it wasn't. Just because the game now allows you to self-correct so quickly, 
and have these very specific outcomes you can work on. And you know, certain players can get domed up and they can wind up effectively working to the outcomes instead of working to actual baseball success. So I think you have to be very careful about how you used it. But the answer is probably different for everyone um, because I've, I've seen 16, 17 year old kids that can come in and have very honest conversations about you know vertical attack angle and induce vertical break in some of these things. And I can I've seen other kids that they haven't even you know, deadlifted 135 and earned a seat at that table. So I think it's a very individual discussion. I'd say for the most part, it's juniors and seniors on, and you're probably introducing concepts, things like spin efficiency, some of those things, and also teaching them how to kill spin on the changeup, throw an elite breaking ball. And it's all it's doing is it's shortening your ability to teach it compared to what we had 10 years ago. Okay, Eric, one last question. I thought I was done, but how important is it coming back after fall season to begin doing sprints to get ready for the spring season? How do sprints um, enter, enter? When do they start for training purposes for fall athletes going into their spring training? I, I think at that age, it's important to sprint year-round, and that's maybe a, a mindset shift that I've had over the years. But you know, we, do, we know different athletic qualities detrain faster than others. If you look at like strength, aerobic capacity, you can train them once every 30 days and they're going to stick around. You'd be amazed at how many like elite power lifters, you know, might lift heavy once every four weeks and their strength just hangs on. But the thing that is interesting is, is strength and power actually tend to, excuse me, power tends to detrain really quickly. Your ability to generate force quickly, it's as little as five to seven days. I'm a huge believer that speed is something that needs to be trained really regularly. We actually, in our minor league system, rolled out one of the most aggressive base running initiatives in the history of professional baseball this year. And we saw our lower extremity injuries go down across the board on top of our average 10 and 20 times improving a ton. We, we kicked out some really good base stealers who had never stolen bases in their careers. And I, I want to say we were one of the best organizations in professional baseball in terms of number of stolen bases. It was a huge credit to Matt Tallarico, our base running coordinator, but it was just a good reminder that like speed is like any other quality. If you don't train it, it goes away. And that extends to throwing programs and, and things along those lines as well. You got to train power regularly. Coach Pickens, did you have a question you wanted to fire off? Uh, yeah, I think you can hear me. I got some bad service, but uh, we have the former Yankees uh, strength conditioning coordinator, Dana Cavalia, as our college strength coach and uh, we have a few athletes on our team that decide to do what they want to do and I know to each their own but at the same time he was also World Series champion plus MLB strength coach of the year so how many guys right now on your Yankees team just skip what you ask them to do skip in what sense like just don't pay attention to any of it (laughs) pretty much I don't think there's ever complete exclusion being honest I think there are guys that borrow bits and pieces, and that's your job as a coach is to meet people where they're at, um, particularly at the highest level. I, I know there are guys that do exactly what we ask across the board. Like Jordan Montgomery, if, if I put it on paper, he's going to do it to to an absolute T. There are going to be other guys that have very refined routines. I mean, Araldis Chapman's been throwing 100 in the big leagues for, for 12 years. He's got a very meticulous routine, and I think in those situations – and initially, the job is to to sit back and observe. Garrett Cole's thrown 100 since he was 16. These are these are freaks. These are the Ferraris. And so sometimes you have to just recognize that they they have figured out a lot of things that works for them. So you're in a supportive role. You say, hey, what can we do to help you out with the recovery side of things? What are you doing on the nutrition, the sleep quality? So you try to meet them where they're at. 
my feeling though is that's a different discussion in the big leagues than it is with a kid in low A who hasn't figured out his routines. It's certainly a very different discussion than you would have with a high school or a college player that just hasn't had the years and the reps to really figure out what works for them. But yeah, at the end of the day, and Danny can speak to this, you know, certainly as well, is that at that level, you certainly don't have the same kind of like authority as you would have over a minor leaguer. And in the minor leagues, you're going to get much better buy-in because if they don't buy-in, they're not going to get promoted. <laughs> so it's a very different discussion. So sometimes it has to be one of mine, one of yours kind of play for the tie with guys, but that's where relationships come in. And they're going to be guys that Blake works with who don't necessarily agree with his approach to attacking a hitter or running a throwing program. So you have a discussion and you figure out what works best for everybody. Question yeah, for Matt Blake. Do you think Latino players signing? Go ahead, Matt. Oh, sorry. I was just going to piggyback Go on ahead, that. Matt. We had a lot of that with Cleveland when we were helping oversee the the minor leagues. But I think the biggest thing is, as much as you'd like them to do everything. You are pro- like programming. I think there's probably a place to go out and bring those people in to have like partnership with. So at least you, you can get on the same page about the language they're using and it doesn't become as big of an interference in your program because they're not all in on what you're maybe teaching. I think it's giving them a, a set value system at the beginning that you maybe are striving towards and then using different means to get there but trying to make sure the language is consistent as possible is where we got to. Okay, this is a question, Matt. You would probably have some experiences with this with regard to your Cleveland Indian days. Do you think Latin American players signing at younger ages, 16 years old, have a disadvantage in terms of mechanics in comparison to U.S.-based athletes? The younger athletes do they find themselves changing more stuff in their mechanic or movements when they come to play professional baseball in the States? It probably depends. There's a lot of times where there's academies down in Dominican on the amateur side that are teaching certain things that you don't particularly love. But I think in general, you know, there's probably a freer, looser thrower that you sign internationally just because there probably isn't as much formal instruction so they're just more of an emphasis on you know, throwing far, throwing hard, things of that nature. And then uh, on the amateur side and the American, the more domestic players, you know, there probably is a, a higher emphasis on strike throwing at an earlier age and a, a more refined mechanic that you're maybe trying to loosen up and increase their actual throwing ability. So I think it's just looking at it on the continuum of where are they from a, a skill standpoint versus a throwing ability standpoint and trying to figure out what they need more of. Question for Caleb. At what point do, does a pitcher need to decide whether he should throw a curveball versus a slider? How do you pair each pitch? Meaning, are you pairing a curveball off a fastball? Are you pairing a slider off of a changeup, et cetera? Yeah. At our level in college, it's really hard for guys to throw more than two. One fastball, one off speed. Guys definitely aren't a finished product yet, and it's not where you can throw them out in the minor leagues and let them figure it out. We have to be able to go in and win right now. So very seldom at our level do you see guys with two really good ones. But you normally pair it off the fastball. If it's a guy that spins it, has a good vertical approach, has the arm angle for a curveball, that normally seems to pair better. And then your two-seam guys, guys that sink it are – 
traditionally more your slider guys. Now there's there's some abnormalities and differences in there, but for the most part at our level, it's very rare do you see a guy with two really good ones. It's important for Sean Allen, our pitching coach, to definitely make sure that they have one really good one along to go with the fastball. Okay, I want to tell everybody tonight that both Eric and Matt and Caleb and Tyler were very generous with their times. I greatly appreciate, I'm sure Butch greatly appreciate them spending as much time, got through as many questions as we could. I want to also put the uh, the rumor to rest that Eric Cressy was better catcher than Craig Albernez. That is the rumor that was floating around from back in the day that the left-handed catcher from Kenny Bunk was actually a better catcher. And I want to put that rumor to rest because Craig was a was a very good resource for Tyler. It's co- very coincidence that all of these people that were involved with with Tyler as a young student athlete at Cressy Hudson Mass all became a major league pitching coach, a major league strength coach, a major league bullpen coach. It's just fascinating to me, the world of baseball and how truly small it is. And I am very appreciative to have those men still involved in my son's life to this day. They are true mentors in every sense of the word. And we're going on 13 years together, and I'm very appreciative of that. Unless anybody else has any questions, I'm going to thank Eric, Matt, Caleb, and Tyler. I think we had a tremendous forum here this evening. Tom House was listening in. He was very hoarse. He apologized. He will be with us in, in, in future uh, Twitter spaces over the course of probably the end of this year, or early next year. If you have any questions that you want me to get out to uh, any of the speakers from tonight, you can send them to me via Twitter, via direct message, or if you have my cell phone number. I want to thank everybody for, for joining us tonight. I think it was extremely beneficial for all student athletes to hear not only from the physical perspective of strength training and conditioning, Also, we heard about throwing athletes in general, but we also talked a little bit about the mental component, kind of a carryover from last week. Uh, And I really want to stress to student athletes that may be listening, I know that we have several teams on tonight's call. When you're a high profile student athlete and you have a bullseye on your back, the terminology of mental toughness is truly, in my opinion, something that we need to talk more about, teach more bring an awareness about the expectations that are placed on student athletes allow them to vent and to explain what they're thinking and how how they're feeling your success as a student athlete is not based on statistics results none of that it doesn't speak to who you are as an individual it's a part of who you are it's a part of your being a student athlete I think we place too much emphasis on statistics and wins and losses. Uh, And with social media, you're a goat one day, you're a hero the next, goat in the the figure of of a dog. And on social media, I heard spent last evening on Athlete 911 with Butch talking about his slow start as a professional and how they said he was overrated and he was not going to be nothing more than an A-ball player. And here he now stands on the cusp of being a big league athlete. So the mental component to being a student athlete, regardless of sport, is a very big 
topic and big issue that we're going to delve deeper into in, in, in the future going forward. I think Craig wants to speak up here, hopefully on the the battle of bullpen catchers back at Cressy Performance Hudson. At least I'd like him to weigh in on that. And, and the odd turn of events on how he becomes Tyler's uh, coach at the big league level with the San Francisco Giants. Hoping Craig can jump in before we all have to go. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt that EC is a much better bullpen catcher than I ever was. With that mobility in those hands, no doubt, especially the lefty target. But no, <laughs> it's just uh, being up at, you know, up at Cressy's and being around his environment and his culture, it's just tough not to get better and grow and be hungry. When seeing young athletes like Tyler and seeing them have their drive and passion and have that structure. Now, that's something I, I did not have as a young high school player. And that's something I had to learn like my third year in the pro ball. So like, to see that and, and be, be a part of it and see everyone flourish is great. And then to link back up with Tyler to see how much he's grown going to Vandy and doing his thing, national championship, even getting drafted in the first round of high school and turning that down because he had priorities and he had goals and he had dreams and he had a vision. And to see that vision come to fruition, that's real. And that speaks to his mental toughness at that time. And then you get thrown in the ringer in the minor leagues and you got to grind it out. You go from top dog to now you're just a runt in the litter. And for him to get back up to the big, get to the big leagues was, was cool to see. And now they kind of get to, to work alongside of him and have that shared ownership and his development and his maturation process. And ultimately, to see Tyler get back on, on the big league level and, and show the world what he can do. And I feel like that's what any athlete wants, is just that opportunity to shine and, and have their work uh, come to fruition. So I think this is great that you're giving everyone a platform and also having you know people and parents and other coaches ask questions and and try to figure stuff out because I feel like that's what we're all trying to do at any level. We're just trying to figure stuff out, ask the right questions, and hopefully just make one good baseball and one good life decision at a time. And hopefully that at the end of the day, we're in a good spot. That's enough sucking up, Albie. <laughs> that's what I do, Matty. Hey, yeah. Hey, the real question is what were the bullpen catching rules again? Those were the really what set you apart. Oh, man. oh it, man! If you say one more, it's one more, and then bullpen's <laughs> That's right. done. If you spike a fastball, the bullpen. No, just... no doubt. I think the three big ones were one more means one more. I'm not, I'm not throwing the ball back. If you threw 30 pitches, you throw one more next to you, it's you're at 42. I think the spike fastball was was a big issue just because I think a lot of times where you know, we didn't have a mask on, we were just like, hey, Albie, can you grab this pen real quick? in the cage and trying to have Johnny All-American and in January, max effort throws from 40 feet in front of you. And then what was the last one? Oh, it, when, it, when the pitcher threw a nasty breaking ball or a nasty pitch and they ask you, hey, is that a good pitch? Yeah, I think everyone hey, knows that, in hey, the that, facility. That break? That, yeah, that break? <laughs> is that a good? Yeah, dude, it was a nasty pitch you ever thrown. If you want me to, to, to keep on stroking you, go, we can. But that's that was a fun part of being up there. It was all, all of us. Talking, talking a lot of crap to each other. I think the highlight was watching Chad Rogers and Tim Collins together in, in one space. I still think that is the greatest duo that was ever created in baseball landscape. I would love to see that team get back together again. 
the last question on the table is, is anybody going to be at the ABCA? So is Matt or Caleb, Eric, anybody going to the ABCA? I hadn't sorted that out yet. Uh, trying to get to either one of that or the Mohegan Sun event in January. So I'll be at one of those. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be in the Mark trading booth. I think we're across from TrackMan right in the middle. So hopefully look forward to meeting a lot of the people in this message for sure. Just want to let uh, parents and student athletes know that tonight we probably have four big leaguers, both former and current big leaguers, listening in. I know one was doing some talking, but I find that to be pretty cool. Guys like Michael Kadire. I know Brad Goldberg has been on these in the past. But we're going to end that here. I want to thank everybody. Next week, we're going to talk hitting. We have a few special guests that we're going to get lined up for that. Maybe we'll have uh, Caleb come back and talk about Marv and hitting. Some of the questions that we're going to discuss is weighted bats, training tools, when to play up, when not to play up. But I want to thank everybody that spent the time with us this evening. I'd like to thank Eric, Matt, Caleb, and Tyler, as well as Craig for uh, for speaking this evening.